0: Savage formations are oral, are vocal, but not because they lack a graphic system, a dance on the earth, a drawing on a wall, a mark on the body are a graphic system, a geographism, a geography. These formations are oral precisely because they possess a graphic system that is independent of the voice, a system that is not aligned on the voice and not subordinate to it, but connected to it, coordinated in an organization that is radiating, as it were, and multidimensional. And it must be said that this graphic system is linear writings contrary, civilizations cease being oral only through losing the independence and the particular dimensions of the graphic system, by aligning itself on the voice, graphism supplants the voice and induces a fictitious voice. André Leroy Gourhan has admirably described these two heterogeneous poles of the savage inscription process or territorial representation, The couple voice audition and hand graphics.34 How does such a machine work? For it does work, the voice is like a voice of alliance to which, on the side of the extended filiation, a graphics is coordinated that bears no resemblance. The calabash of the excision is placed on the body of the young woman. Furnished by the husband's lineage, the calabash serves as a conductor for the voice of alliance, but the graphism must be traced by a member of the young woman's clan. The articulation of the two elements takes place on the body itself, and constitutes the sign, which is not a resemblance or imitation, nor an effect of a signifier, but rather a position and a production of desire, in order for the young woman's transformation to be fully effective, a direct contact must take place between her stomach, on the one hand, and the calabash and the signs inscribed on her, on the other hand the young woman must become physically saturated with the signs of procreation and she must incorporate them. The young women are never taught the meaning of the ideograms during their initiation. The sign acts through its inscription in the body. The inscription of a mark on the body does not merely possess a message value here, but is an instrument of action that acts on the body itself. The signs command the things they signify, and far from being a mere imitator, The Artisan of the Signs accomplishes a work that calls to mind the Divine Creation 35. But how does one explain the role played by sight, indicated by Leroy Gurhan, in the contemplation of the face that is speaking, as well as in the reading of the manual graphism? Or more precisely, what enables the eye to grasp a terrible equivalence between the voice of alliance that inflicts and constrains, and the body afflicted by the sign that a hand is carving in it? Isn't it necessary to add a third element of the sign eye pain, in addition to voice audition and hand graphics? In the rituals of affliction the patient does not speak, but receives the spoken word. He does not act, but is passive under the graphic action, he receives the stamp of the sign. And what is his pain if not a pleasure for the eye that regards it, the collective or divine eye that is not motivated by any idea of revenge? but is alone capable of grasping the subtle relationship between the sign engraved in the body and the voice issuing from a face between the mark and the mask. Between these two elements of the code, pain is like the surplus value that the eye extracts, taking hold of the effect of active speech on the body, but also of the reaction of the body insofar as it is acted upon. This is indeed what must be called a debt system or territorial representation, a voice that speaks or intones, a sign marked in bare flesh, an eye that extracts enjoyment from the pain, these are the three sides of a savage triangle forming a territory of resonance and retention, a theater of cruelty that implies the triple independence of the articulated voice, the graphic hand, and the appreciative eye. Such is the manner in which territorial representation organizes itself at the surface, still quite close to a desiring machine of eye-hand voice. A magic triangle. Everything in this system is active, acted upon, or reacted to, the action of the voice of alliance, the passion of the body of filiation, the reaction of the eye evaluating the declension of the two. To choose the stone that will make a man of the young Guayaki, with enough pain and suffering, by cleaving the length of his back, it must have a good cutting edge says CLAS trace in an admirable text but not like a sliver of bamboo, which cuts too easily. Choosing the right stone therefore requires a practiced eye. The whole apparatus of this new ceremony is reduced to that, a rock, furrowed skin, scarified earth, one and the same Mark 36. The great book of modern ethnology is not so much moss as the gift as Nietzsche's on the genealogy of morals. At least it should be. For the genealogy, the second essay, is an attempt and a success without equal at interpreting primitive economy in terms of debt, in the debtor-creditor relationship, by eliminating every consideration of exchange or interest to l'anglaise. And if they are eliminated from psychology, it is not in order to place them in structure. Nietzsche has only a meager set of tools at his disposal some ancient Germanic law, a little Hindu law. But he does not hesitate as does moss, between exchange and debt. Georges Baudelaire, motivated by a Nietzschean inspiration, will not hesitate either. The fundamental problem of the primitive socius, which is the problem of inscription, of coding, of marking, has never been raised in such an incisive fashion. Man must constitute himself through the repression of the intense germinal influx, the great biocosmic memory that threatens to deluge every attempt at collectivity. But at the same time, how is a new memory to be created for man a collective memory of the spoken word and of alliances that declines the alliances with the extended filiations, that endows him with faculties of resonance and retention, of selection, pre and detachment, and that affects in this way the coding of the flows of desire as a condition of the socius? The answer is simple, it is debt open, mobile, and finite blocks of debt this extraordinary composite of the speaking voice, the marked body, and the enjoying eye. All the stupidity and the arbitrariness of the laws, all the pain of the initiations, the whole perverse apparatus of repression and education, the red-hot irons, and the atrocious procedures have only this meaning, to breed man, to mark him in his flesh, to render him capable of alliance, to form him within the debtor-creditor relation, which on both sides turns out to be a matter of memory—a memory straining toward the future. Far from being an appearance assumed by exchange, debt is the immediate effect or the direct means of the territorial and corporal inscription process. Debt is the direct result of inscription. Once again no revenge, no ressentiment will be invoked here—that is not the ground they grow on, any more than does Oedipus. The fact that innocent men suffer all the marks on their bodies derives from the respective autonomy of the voice and the graphic action, and also from the autonomous eye that extracts pleasure from the event. It is not because everyone is suspected, in advance, of being a future bad debtor, the contrary would be closer to the truth. It is the bad debtor who must be understood as if the marks had not sufficiently taken on him, as if he were or had been unmarked. He has merely widened, beyond the limits allowed, the gap that separated the voice of alliance and the body of filiation, to such a degree that it is necessary to re-establish the equilibrium through an increase in pain. Nietzsche doesn't say this, but what does it matter? For it is indeed here that he encounters the terrible equation of debt, injury done equals pain to be suffered. How does one explain, he asks, that the criminal's pain can serve as an equivalent of the harm he has done? How can one pay back with suffering? An eye must be invoked that extracts pleasure from the event, this has nothing to do with vengeance something that Nietzsche himself calls the evaluating eye, or the eye of the gods who enjoy cruel spectacles, and in punishment there is so much that is festive Thirty-seven. So much is pain part of an active life and an obliging gaze. The equation injury equals pain has nothing gist about it, and it shows in this extreme case that the debt itself had nothing to do with exchange. Simply stated, the eye extracts from the pain it is contemplating a surplus value of code that compensates the broken relationship between the voice of alliance that the criminal has wronged, and the mark that had not sufficiently penetrated his body. The crime, a rupture of the phonographic connection, re-established by the spectacle of the punishment, as primitive justice, Territorial representation has foreseen everything. Coding pain and death, it has foreseen everything except for the way its own death would come to it from without. They come like fate, without reason, consideration, or pretext, they appear as lightning appears, too terrible, too convincing, too sudden, too different even to be hated. Their work is an instinctive creation and imposition of forms, they are the most involuntary, Unconscious artists there are wherever they appear something new arises, a ruling structure that lives, in which parts and functions are delimited and coordinated, in which nothing whatever finds a place that has not first been assigned a meaning in relation to the whole. They do not know what guilt, responsibility, or consideration are, these born organizers, they exemplify that terrible artist's egoism that has the look of bronze and knows itself justified to all eternity in its work, like a mother in her child. It is not in them that the bad conscience developed, that goes without saying but it would not have developed if a tremendous quantity of freedom had not been expelled from the world, or at least from the visible world, and made as it were latent under their hammer blows and artists' violence. 38. It is here that Nietzsche speaks of a break, a rupture, a leap. Who are these beings, they who come like fate? Some pack of blonde beasts of prey, a conqueror, and master race which, organized for war and with the ability to organize, unhesitatingly lays its terrible claws upon a populace perhaps tremendously superior in numbers but still formless. 39. Even the most ancient African myths speak to us of these blonde men. They are the founders of the state. Nietzsche will come to establish the existence of other breaks, those of the Greek city-state, Christianity, democratic and bourgeois humanism, industrial society, capitalism and socialism. But it could be that all these in various ways presuppose this first great hiatus, although they all claim to repel and to fill it. It could be that, spiritual or temporal, tyrannical or democratic, capitalist or socialist, there has never been but a single state, the state as dog that speaks with flaming roars 40. And Nietzsche suggests how this new socius proceeds, a terror without precedent, in comparison with which the ancient system of cruelty, the forms of primitive regimentation and punishment, are nothing. A concerted destruction of all the primitive coatings, or worse yet, their derisory preservation, their reduction to the condition of secondary parts in the new machine, and the new apparatus of repression, refoulement. All that constituted the essential element of the primitive inscription machine the blocks of mobile, open, finite debts, the parcels of destiny finds itself taken into an immense machinery that renders the debt infinite and no longer forms anything but one and the same crushing fate, the aim now is to preclude pessimistically, once and for all, the prospect of a final discharge, the aim now is to make the glance recoil disconsolately from an iron impossibility 41. The earth becomes a madhouse. 6. The Barbarian Despotic Machine The founding of the Despotic Machine or the Barbarian Socius can be summarized in the following way, a new alliance and direct filiation. The despot challenges the lateral alliances and the extended filiations of the old community. He imposes a new alliance system and places himself in direct filiation with the deity, the people must follow. A leap into a new alliance A break with the ancient filiation this is expressed in a strange machine, or rather a machine of the strange whose locus is the desert, imposing the harshest and the most barren of ordeals, and attesting to the resistance of an old order as well as to the validation of the new order. The machine of the strange is both a great paranoiac machine, since it expresses the struggle with the old system, and already a glorious celibate machine, insofar as it exalts the triumph of the new alliance. The despot is the paranoiac, there is no longer any reason to forego such a statement, once one has freed oneself from the characteristic familialism of the concept of paranoia in psychoanalysis and psychiatry, and provided one sees in paranoia a type of investment of a social formation. And new perverse groups spread the despot's invention, perhaps they even fabricated it for him, broadcast his fame, and impose his power in the towns they found or conquer. Wherever a despot and his army pass, doctors, priests, scribes, and officials are part of the procession. It might be said that the ancient complementarity has shifted to form a new socius, no longer the bush paranoiac and the encampment or village perverts, but the desert paranoiac and the town perverts. In theory, the despotic barbarian formation has to be conceived of in terms of an opposition between it and the primitive territorial machine, the birth of an empire but in reality one can perceive the movement of this formation just as well when one empire breaks away from a preceding empire, or even when there arises the dream of a spiritual empire, wherever temporal empires fall into decadence. It may be that the enterprise is primarily military and motivated by conquest, or that it is primarily religious, the military discipline being converted into internal asceticism and cohesion. It may be that the paranoiac himself is either a gentle creature or a raging beast. But we always rediscover the figures of this paranoiac and his perverts, the conqueror and his elite troops, the despot and his bureaucrats, the holy man and his disciples, the Ancho Rite and his monks, Christ and his Saint Paul. Moses flees from the Egyptian machine into the wilderness and installs his new machine there, a holy ark and a portable temple, and gives his people a new religious-military organization. In order to summarize St. John the Baptist's enterprise, one author declares, John attacks at its foundation the central doctrine of Judaism, the doctrine of the alliance with God through affiliation that goes back to Abraham 42. There is the essential, every time the categories of new alliance and direct filiation are mobilized, we are talking about the imperial barbarian formation or the despotic machine and this holds true whatever the context of this mobilization, whether in a relationship with preceding empires or not, since throughout these vicissitudes the imperial formation is always defined by a certain type of code and inscription that is in direct opposition to the primitive territorial codings. The number of elements in the alliance makes little difference, new alliance and direct filiation are specific categories that testify to the existence of a new socius, irreducible to the lateral alliances and the extended filiations that decline the primitive machine. It is this force of projection that defines paranoia, this strength to start again from zero, to objectify a complete transformation, the subject leaps outside the intersections of alliance filiation, installs himself at the limit, at the horizon, in the desert, the subject of a deterritorialized knowledge that links him directly to God and connects him to the people. For the first time, something has been withdrawn from life and from the earth that will make it possible to judge life and to survey the earth from above, a first principle of paranoiac knowledge. The whole relative play of alliances and filiations is carried to the absolute in this new alliance and this direct filiation. It remains to be said that, in order to understand the barbarian formation, it is necessary to relate it not to other formations in competition with it temporally and spiritually, according to relationships that obscure the essential, but to the savage primitive formation that it supplants by imposing its own rule of law, but that continues to haunt it. It is exactly in this way that Marx defines Asiatic production, a higher unity of the state establishes itself on the foundations of the primitive rural communities, which keep their ownership of the soil, while the state becomes the true owner in conformity with the apparent objective movement that attributes the surplus product to the state, assigns the productive forces to it in the great projects undertaken, and makes it appear as the cause of the collective conditions of appropriation.43. The full body as Socius has ceased to be the earth, it has become the body of the despot, the despot himself or his God. The prescriptions and prohibitions that often render him almost incapable of acting make of him a body without organs. He is the sole quasi-cause, the source, and fountainhead and estuary of the apparent objective movement. In place of mobile detachments from the signifying chain, a detached object has jumped outside the chain, in place of flow selections, all the flows converge into a great river that constitutes the sovereign's consumption, a radical change of regimes in the fetish or the symbol. What counts is not the person of the sovereign, nor even his function, which can be limited. It is the social machine that has profoundly changed, in place of the territorial machine, There is the mega-machine of the state, a functional pyramid that has the despot at its apex, an immobile motor, with the bureaucratic apparatus as its lateral surface and its transmission gear, and the villagers at its base, serving as its working parts. The stocks form the object of an accumulation, the blocks of debt become an infinite relation in the form of the tribute. The entire surplus value of code is an object of appropriation. This conversion crosses through all the synth essays, the synthesis of production, with the hydraulic machine and the mining machine, the synthesis of inscription, with the accounting machine, the writing machine, and the monument machine, and finally the synthesis of consumption, with the upkeep of the despot, his court, and the bureaucratic caste. Far from seeing in the state the principle of a territorialization that would inscribe people according to their residence, we should see in the principle of residence the effect of a movement of deterritorialization that divides the earth as an object and subjects men to the new imperial inscription, to the new full body, to the new socius. They come like fate. They appear as lightning appears, too terrible, too sudden forty-four. The death of the primitive system always comes from without, history is the history of contingencies and encounters. Like a cloud blown in from the desert, The conquerors are there, in some way that is incomprehensible to me they have pushed right into the capital, although it is a long way from the frontier. At any rate, here they are, it seems that every morning there are more of them. Speech with the nomads is impossible. They do not know our own language. 45. But this death that comes from without is also that which was rising from within, the general irreducibility of alliance to filiation. The independence of the alliance groups, the way in which they serve as a conducting element for the political and economic relations, the system of primitive rankings, the mechanism of surplus value all this already prefigured despotic formations and caste hierarchies. And how does one distinguish the way in which the primitive community remains on its guard with respect to its own institutions of chieftainship, and exorcises or straitjackets the image of the possible despot whom it threatens to secrete from within? from the way in which it binds up the symbol a symbol that has become derisory of a former despot who thrust himself upon the community from the outside long ago. It is not always easy to know if one is considering a primitive community that is repressing an endogenous tendency, or one that is regaining its cohesion as best it can after a terrible exogenous adventure. The game of alliances is ambiguous, are we still on this side of the new alliance, or already beyond it, having fallen back? as it were, into a this side of that is residual and transformed. Related question, what is the feudal system? We are only able to fix the precise moment of the imperial formation as that of the new exogenous alliance, not only in the place of former alliances, but in relation to them. This new alliance is something altogether different from a treaty or a contract. What is suppressed is not the former regime of lateral alliances and extended filiations, but merely their determining character. They subsist, more or less modified, more or less harnessed by the great paranoiac, since they furnish the material of surplus value. In point of fact, that is what forms the specific character of Asiatic production, the autochthonous rural communities subsist, and continue to produce, inscribe, and consume, in effect, they are the state's sole concern. The wheels of the territorial lineage machine subsist, but are no longer anything more than the working parts of the state machine. The objects, the organs, the persons, and the groups retain at least a part of their intrinsic coding, but these coded flows of the former regime find themselves overcoded by the transcendent unity that appropriates surplus value. The old inscription remains, but is bricked over by and in the inscription of the state. The blocks subsist. But have become encasted and embedded bricks, having only a controlled mobility. The territorial alliances are not replaced, but are merely allied with the new alliance, the territorial filiations are not replaced, but are merely affiliated with the direct filiation. It is like an immense right of the firstborn over all filiations, an immense right of the wedding night over all alliances. The filiative stock becomes the object of an accumulation in the other filiation, while the alliance debt becomes an infinite relation in the other alliance. It is the entire primitive system that finds itself mobilized, requisitioned by a superior power, subjugated by new exterior forces, put in the service of other ends, so true is it, said Nietzsche, that what is called the evolution of a thing is a succession of more or less profound, more or less mutually independent processes of subduing, plus the resistances they encounter. The attempts at transformation for the purpose of defense and reaction, and the results of successful counteractions. 46. It has often been remarked that the state commences, or recommences, with two fundamental acts, one of which is said to be an act of territoriality through the fixing of residence, and the other, an act of liberation through the abolition of small debts. But the state operates by means of euphemisms. The pseudo-territoriality is the product of an effective deterritorialization that substitutes abstract signs for the signs of the earth, and that makes the earth itself into the object of a state ownership of property, or an ownership held by the state's richest servants and officials. There is no great change, from this point of view, when the state no longer does anything more than guarantee the private property of a ruling class that becomes distinct from the state. The abolition of debts, when it takes place, is a means of maintaining the distribution of land, and a means of preventing the entry on stage of a new territorial machine, possibly revolutionary and capable of raising and dealing with the agrarian problem in a comprehensive way. In other cases where a redistribution occurs, the cycle of credits is maintained, in the new form established by the state money. For without question, money does not begin by serving the needs of commerce, or at least it has no autonomous mercantile model. The despotic machine holds the following in common with the primitive machine, it confirms the latter in this respect, the dread of decoded flows flows of production, but also mercantile flows, flux margins of exchange and commerce that might escape the state monopoly, with its tight restrictions and its plugging of flows. When Etienne Bollish asks why capitalism wasn't born in China in the 13th century, when all the necessary scientific and technical conditions nevertheless seem to be present, the answer lies in the state, which closed the mines as soon as the reserves of metal were judged sufficient, and which retained a monopoly or a narrow control over commerce, the merchant as functionary, point forty-seven. The role of money in commerce hinges less on commerce itself than on its control by the state. Commerce's relationship with money is synthetic, not analytical and money is fundamentally inseparable, not from commerce, but from taxes as the maintenance of the apparatus of the state. Even where dominant classes set themselves apart from this apparatus and make use of it for the benefit of private property, the despotic tie between money and taxes remains visible. Basing himself on the research of Edouard Will, Michel Foucault shows how, in certain Greek tyrannies, the tax on aristocrats and the distribution of money to the poor are a means of bringing the money back to the rich and a means of remarkably widening the regime of debts, making it even stronger, by anticipating and repressing any re-territorialization that might be produced by the economic givens of the agrarian problem. Point forty-eight, as if the Greeks had discovered in their own way what the Americans rediscovered after the New Deal, that heavy taxes are good for business. In a word, money the circulation of money is the means for rendering the debt infinite. And that is what is concealed in the two acts of the state, the residence or territoriality of the state inaugurates the great movement of deterritorialization that subordinates all the primitive filiations to the despotic machine, the agrarian problem, the abolition of debts or their accountable transformation initiates the duty of an interminable service to the state that subordinates all the primitive alliances to itself, the problem of debts, The infinite creditor and infinite credit have replaced the blocks of mobile and finite debts. There is always a monotheism on the horizon of despotism, the debt becomes a debt of existence, a debt of the existence of the subjects themselves. A time will come when the creditor has not yet lent while the debtor never quits repaying, for repaying is a duty but lending is an option, as in Lewis Carroll's song, The Long Song About the Infinite Debt. A man may surely claim his dues, but, When there's money to be lent, a man must be allowed to choose such times as are convenient. Point 49. The despotic state, such as it appears in the purest conditions of Asiatic production, has two correlative aspects, on the one hand it replaces the territorial machine, it forms a new deterritorialized full body, on the other hand it maintains the old territorialities, integrates them as parts or organs of production in the new machine. It is perfected all at once because it functions on the basis of dispersed rural communities, which are like pre-existing autonomous or semi-autonomous machines from the viewpoint of production, but from this same viewpoint, it reacts on them in producing the conditions for major work projects that exceed the capacities of the separate communities. What is produced on the body of the despot is a connective synthesis of the old alliances with the new, and a disjunctive synthesis that entails an overflowing of the old filiations into the direct filiation, gathering all the subjects into the new machine. The essential action of the state, therefore, is the creation of a second inscription by which the new full-body immobile, monumental, immutable appropriates all the forces and agents of production, but this inscription of the state allows the old territorial inscriptions to subsist, as bricks on the new surface. And finally, from this appropriation there results the way in which the conjunction of the two parts is implemented and the respective portions are distributed to the higher proprietary unity and to the propertied communities, to the overcoding process and to the intrinsic codes, to the appropriated surplus value and to the usufruct put into use, to the state machine and to the territorial machines. As in Kafka's The Great Wall of China, the state is the transcendent higher unity that integrates relatively isolated sub-aggregates, functioning separately, to which it assigns a development in bricks and a labor of construction by fragments, scattered partial objects hanging on the body without organs. No one has equaled Kafka in demonstrating that the law had nothing to do with a natural, harmonious and imminent totality, but that it acted as an eminent formal unity, and reigned accordingly over pieces and fragments, the wall and the tower. Hence the state is not primeval, it is an origin or an abstraction, it is the original abstract essence that is not to be confused with a beginning. We think only about the emperor, but not about the present one, or rather we would think about the present one if we knew who he was or knew anything definite about him. The people do not know what emperor is reigning, and there exist doubts regarding even the name of the dynasty. Long dead emperors are set on the throne in our villages, and one that only lives in song recently had a proclamation of his read out by the priest before the Altar 50. As for the subaggregates themselves, the primitive territorial machines, they are the concrete itself, the concrete base and beginning, but their segments here enter into relationships corresponding to the essence, they assume precisely this form of bricks that ensures their integration into the higher unity and their distributive operation, consonant with the great collective designs of this same unity, major work projects, extortion of surplus value, tributes, generalized servitude. Two inscriptions coexist in the imperial formation, and mutually adjust insofar as the one is imbricated into the other, but the new inscription cements the whole and brings producers and products into relations with itself, they do not need to speak the same language. The imperial inscription countersects all the alliances and filiations, prolongs them, makes them converge into the direct filiation of the despot with the deity, and the new alliance of the despot with the people. All the coded flows of the primitive machine are now forced into a bottleneck, where the despotic machine overcodes them. Overcoding is the operation that constitutes the essence of the state, and that measures both its continuity and its break with the previous formations the dread of flows of desire that would resist coding, but also the establishment of a new inscription that overcodes, and that makes desire into the property of the Sovereign, even though he be the death instinct itself, the castes are inseparable from this overcoding, and imply the existence of dominant classes that do not yet manifest themselves as classes, but are merged with a state apparatus. Who is able to touch the full body of the Sovereign? Here we have a problem of castes. It is overcoating that impoverishes the earth for the benefit of the deterritorialized full body, and that on this full body renders the movement of debt infinite. It is a measure of Nietzsche's force to have stressed the importance of such a movement that begins with the founders of states, these artists with a look of bronze, creating an oppressive and remorseless machine, 51 erecting before any perspective of liberation an ironclad impossibility. This infinitivation, infinitivation, cannot be understood exactly as Nietzsche would have it that is, as a consequence of the interplay of ancestors, profound genealogies and extended filiations, rather, when these are short circuited abducted by the new alliance and direct filiation, then the ancestor the master of the mobile and finite blocks finds himself dismissed by the deity, the immobile organizer of the bricks and of their infinite circuit. 7. Barbarian or Imperial Representation. Incest with the sister and incest with the mother are very different things. The sister is not a substitute for the mother, the one belongs to the connective category of alliance, the other to the disjunctive category of filiation. Incest with the sister is prohibited insofar as the conditions of territorial coding require that alliance not be confounded with filiation, and incest with the mother, insofar as descent within filiation must not be allowed to interfere with ascending lines. That is why the despot's incest is twofold, by virtue of the new alliance and direct filiation. He begins by marrying the sister. But he enters into this forbidden and dogamous marriage outside the tribe, inasmuch as he is himself outside his tribe, on the outside or at the outer limits of the territory. This is what Pierre Gordon showed in his strange book, the same rule that proscribes incest must prescribe it for certain persons. Exogamy must result in the position of men outside the tribe who for their part are entitled to an endogamous marriage and are able by virtue of this formidable right to serve as initiators to exogamous subjects of both sexes the sacred deflowerer the ritual initiator on the mountain or across the waters the wilderness land of betrothal all the flows converge on a man such as this all the alliances find themselves countersected by this new alliance that overcodes them Endogamous marriage outside the tribe places the hero in a position to overcode all the endogamous marriages in the tribe. It is clear that incest with the mother has a completely different meaning, this time it is a question of the mother of the tribe, as she exists in the tribe, as the hero finds her in penetrating into the tribe, or finds her again in returning to the tribe after his first marriage. He counter the extended filiations with a direct filiation the initiated or initiating hero becomes king. The second marriage develops the consequences of the first, it draws out the effects of the first. The hero begins by marrying the sister, then he marries the mother. The fact that the two acts can, to varying degrees, be bound together, assimilated, does not rule out the existence of two sequences in the phenomenon, the union with the princess-sister and the union with the mother-queen. Incest goes by twos. The hero is always sitting astride two groups, the one where he leaves to find his sister, the other where he returns to find his mother again. The purpose of this double incest is not to produce a flow, not even a magic flow, but to overcode all the existing flows, and to ensure that no intrinsic code, no underlying flow escapes the overcoding of the despotic machine hence it is by virtue of his sterility that he guarantees the general fecundity. 52 The marriage with the sister is on the outside, it is the wilderness ordeal, it expresses the spatial divergence from the primitive machine, it provides the old alliances with an outcome. It founds the new alliance by effecting a generalized appropriation of all the alliance debts. The marriage with the mother is the return to the tribe, it expresses the temporal divergence from the primitive machine, the difference between the generations, it constitutes the direct filiation that results from the new alliance, by effecting a generalized accumulation of filiative stock. Both marriages are essential to the overcoating, as the two ends of a tie for the despotic knot. A pause seems in order here while we ask how such a thing is possible. How is it that incest has become possible, and not only possible, but the manifest property and seal of the despot? Who is this sister, this mother? The sister and mother of the despot himself? Or should the question be framed in a different way? For it concerns the whole system of representation when it ceases to be territorial and becomes imperial. First of all, we have the impression that the elements of the in-depth system of representation have begun to move, the cellular migration has begun that will carry the Oedipal cell from one locus of representation to another. In the imperial formation, incest has ceased being the displaced representative of desire to become the repressing representation itself. For there can be no doubt, this way the despot has of committing incest, and of making it possible, in no way involves removing the apparatus of social and psychic repression, eliparel repression refoulement. On the contrary, the despot's intervention forms part of the apparatus, it changes only the parts of the machine, yet it is still as the displaced represented that incest now comes to occupy the position of the repressing representation. Another gain in the sum of repression, a new economy in the repressive, repressing apparatus, répressive, a new mark, a new severity. It would be easy, too easy, if it were enough to make incest possible, and to implement this in sovereign fashion. So that the exercise of psychic repression and the service of social repression would be made to end. The royal barbarian incest is merely the means to overcode the flows of desire, certainly not a means to liberate them. O Caligula, O Heliogabalus, O mad memory of vanished emperors! Incest never having been the desire, but merely its displaced, represented as it results from psychic repression social repression has everything to gain when incest comes to take the place of the representation itself, and in this capacity take charge of the repressing function, la function refoullant. That is what we have already seen in psychosis, where the intrusion of the complex into consciousness, according to the traditional criterion, did not, to be sure, alleviate the repression of desire. With incest's new position in the imperial formation, We are therefore speaking only of a migration in the in-depth elements of representation, which will render the latter more foreign, more ruthless, more definitive, or more infinite with respect to desiring production. But this migration would never be possible if there did not occur correlatively a considerable change in the other elements of representation, those elements that operate on the surface of the inscribing socius. What changes singularly in the surface organization of representation is the relationship between the voice and graphism. It is the despot who establishes the practice of writing, the most ancient authors saw this clearly. It is the imperial formation that makes graphism into a system of writing in the proper sense of the term. Legislation, bureaucracy, accounting, the collection of taxes, the state monopoly, imperial justice, the functionary's activity historiography, everything is written in the despot's procession. Let us return to the paradox that emerges from the analyses of Leroy Gurhan, primitive societies are oral not because they lack a graphic system but because, on the contrary, the graphic system in these societies is independent of the voice, it marks signs on the body that respond to the voice, react to the voice, but that are autonomous and do not align themselves on it. In return, Barbarian civilizations are written, not because the voice has been lost but because the graphic system has lost its independence and its particular dimensions, has aligned itself on the voice and has become subordinated to the voice, enabling it to extract from the voice a deterritorialized abstract flux that it retains and makes reverberate in the linear code of writing. In short, graphism in one and the same movement begins to depend on the voice, and induces a mute voice from on high or from the beyond. A voice that begins to depend on graphism. It is by subordinating itself to the voice that writing supplants it. Jacques Derrida is correct in saying that every language presupposes a writing system from which it originates, if by that he means the existence and the connection of some sort of graphism writing in the largest sense of the term. He is also right in saying that, within writing in the narrow sense, hardly any breaks can be established between pictographic, ideogrammic, and phonetic procedures, there is always and already an alignment on the voice, at the same time as a substitution for the voice, supplementarity, and phonetism is never all-powerful, but has also always already begun to labor and elaborate the mute signifier. He is again correct in linking writing to incest in a mysterious fashion but we see nothing in this link that would lead us to conclude in favor of the constancy of an apparatus of psychic repression, operating in the manner of a graphic machine capable of performing as well by means of hieroglyphs as by phonemes. 53 For there is indeed a break that changes everything in the world of representation, between this writing in the narrow sense and writing in the broad sense that is, between two completely different orders of inscription, a graphism that leaves the voice dominant by being independent of the voice while connecting with it, and a graphism that dominates or supplants the voice by depending on it in various ways and by subordinating itself to the voice. The primitive territorial sign is self-validating, it is a position of desire in a state of multiple connections. It is not a sign of a sign nor a desire of a desire. It knows nothing of linear subordination and its reciprocity, neither pictogram nor ideogram, It is rhythm and not form, zigzag and not line, artifact and not idea, production and not expression. Let us try to summarize the differences between these two forms of representation, territorial and imperial. In the first place, territorial representation is made up of two heterogeneous elements, voice and graphism, the former is like the representation of words constituted in lateral alliance, while the latter is like the representation of things of bodies established in extended filiation. The former acts on the latter, while the latter reacts on the former, each element having its own particular force that is connoted along with that of the other, so as to perform the great task of germinal intense repression. What is repressed, in fact, is the full body as the foundation of the intense earth, which must yield its place to the socius in extension, into which the intensities in question pass or fail to pass. The full body of the earth must assume an extension in the socius and as the socius. The primitive socius covers itself in this manner with a network wherein one is continually jumping from words to things, and from bodies to appellations, according to the extensive requirements of the system in its length and its width. What we call the order of connotation is an order in which the word, LEMOT, as a vocal sign designates something, but where the thing designated is no less a sign, because it is furrowed by a graphism that is connoted in conjunction with the voice. The heterogeneity, the divergence, the disequilibrium of the two elements vocal and graphic is resolved by a third element, the visual, the eye. It might be said of this eye that it sees the word it sees it, it does not read it insofar as it evaluates the suffering caused by the graphism. Jean-François Lyotard has attempted to describe such a system in another context, where the word has only a designating function but does not of itself constitute the sign, what becomes a sign is rather the thing or body designated as such, insofar as it reveals an unknown facet described on it, traced by the graphism that responds to the word. The gap between the two elements is bridged by the eye, which sees the word without reading it inasmuch as it appraises the pain emanating from the graphism applied to the flesh itself, the eye jumps. The magic triangle with its three sides voice audition, graphism body, eye pain thus seems to us to be an order of connotation, a system of cruelty where the word has an essentially designating function, but where the graphism itself constitutes a sign in conjunction with the thing designated, and where the eye goes from one to the other, extracting and measuring the visibility of the one against the pain of the other. Everything in the system is active, enacted, agile, or reacting, everything is a matter of use and function. So that when one considers the whole of territorial representation, one is struck by the complexity of the networks with which it covers the socius, the chain of territorial signs is continually jumping from one element to another, radiating in all directions, emitting detachments wherever there are flows to be selected, including disjunctions, consuming remains, extracting surplus values, connecting words, bodies and sufferings, and formulas, things, and effects, connoting voices, graphic, traces, and eyes, always in a polyvocal usage a way of jumping that cannot be contained within an order of meaning, still less within a signifier and if incest seemed impossible to us from this point of view, it is because incest is nothing other than a jump that necessarily fails, this jump that goes from appellations to persons, from names to bodies, on the one hand, the repressed this side of of appellations that do not yet designate persons, but only intensive germinal states, on the other hand, the repressing beyond that only applies appellations to persons by prohibiting persons who answer to the names of sister, mother, father. Between the two, the shallow stream where nothing passes, where the appellations do not adhere to the persons, where the persons elude the graphic action, and where the eye no longer has anything to see or evaluate, incest, the simple displaced limit, neither repressed nor repressing, but merely the displaced representative of desire. From this moment on it appears indeed that the two dimensions of representation its surface organization with the elements voice graphii, and its in-depth organization with the representing instances of desire repressing representation slash displaced represented share the same fate, like a system of correspondences in the heart of a given social machine. All this finds itself overwhelmed in a new destiny, with the despotic machine and imperial representation. In the first place, graphism aligns itself on the voice, falls back on the voice, and becomes writing. At the same time it induces the voice no longer as the voice of alliance, but as that of the new alliance, a fictitious voice from beyond that expresses itself in the flow of writing as direct filiation. These two fundamental despotic categories are also the movement of graphism that, at one and the same time, subordinates itself to the voice in order to subordinate the voice and supplant it. Then there occurs a crushing of the magic triangle, the voice no longer sings but dictates, decrees, the graphy no longer dances, it ceases to animate bodies, but is set into writing on tablets, stones, and books, the eye sets itself to reading. Writing does not entail but implies a kind of blindness, a loss of vision and of the ability to appraise, it is now the eye that suffers, although it also acquires other functions. Or rather, we are unable to say that the magic triangle is completely crushed, it subsists as a base and as a brick, insofar as the territorial machine continues to function in the framework of the new machine. The triangle has become the base for a pyramid, all of whose sides cause the vocal, the graphic, and the visual to converge toward the eminent unity of the despot. If we call the order of representation in a social system a plane of consistency, plan to ants, it is evident that this plane has changed, that it has become a plane of subordination and no longer one of connotation. And here, in the second place, is the essential, the flattening of the graphi onto the voice has made a transcendent object jump outside the chain a mute voice on which the whole chain now seems to depend, and in relation to which it becomes linearized. The subordination of graphism to the voice induces a fictitious voice from on high which, inversely, no longer expresses itself except through the writing signs that it emits, Revelation. This is perhaps the first assembling of formal operations that will lead to Oedipus, the paralogism of extrapolation of flattening out or a set of biunivocal relations that leads to the breakaway and elevation of a detached object, and the linearization of the chain that derives from this object. It is perhaps at this juncture that the question what does it mean begins to be heard, and that problems of exegesis prevail over problems of use and efficacy. The emperor, the god what did he mean? In place of segments of the chain that are always detachable, a detached partial object on which the whole chain depends, in place of a polyvocal graphism flush with the real, a biunivocalization forming the transcendent dimension that gives rise to a linearity, in place of non-signifying signs that compose the networks of a territorial chain, a despotic signifier from which all the signs uniformly flow in a deterritorialized flow of writing. Men have even been seen drinking this flow. Andres Zempleni shows how, in certain regions of Senegal, Islam superimposes a plane of subordination on the old plane of connotation of animist values, the divine or prophetic word, written or recited, is the foundation of this universe, the transparency of the animist prayer yields to the opacity of the rigid Arab verse, speech, le verb, rigidities into formulas whose power is ensured by the truth of the revelation and not by a symbolic or incantatory efficacy. The Moslem holy man's learning refers to a hierarchy of names, verses, numbers, and corresponding beings and if necessary, the verse will be placed in a bottle filled with pure water, the verse water will be drunk, one's body will be rubbed with it, and one's hands will be washed with it. Fifty four. Writing the first deterritorialized flow, drinkable on this account, it flows from the despotic signifier. For what is the signifier in the first instance? What is it in relation to the non signifying territorial signs, when it jumps outside their chains and imposes superimposes a plane of subordination on their plane of imminent connotation? The signifier is the sign that has become a sign of the sign, the despotic sign having replaced the territorial sign. Having crossed the threshold of deterritorialization, the signifier is merely the deterritorialized sign itself. The sign made letter. Desire no longer dares to desire, having become a desire of desire, a desire of the despot's desire. The mouth no longer speaks, it drinks the letter. The eye no longer sees, it reads. The body no longer allows itself to be engraved like the earth but prostrates itself before the engravings of the despot, the region beyond the earth, the new full body. No water will ever cleanse the signifier of its imperial origin, the signifying master or the master signifier. In vain will the signifier be immersed in the immanent system of language, la or be used to clear away problems of meaning and signification, or be resolved into the coexistence of phonematic elements, where the signified is no more than the summary of the respective differential values of these elements in the relationships among themselves. In vain will the comparison of language, language, to exchange and money be pushed to its furthest point, subjecting language to the paradigms of an active capitalism, for one will never prevent the signifier from reintroducing its transcendence, and from bearing witness for a vanished despot who still functions in modern imperialism. Even when it speaks Swiss or American, linguistics manipulates the shadow of Oriental despotism. Ferdinand de Saussure does not merely emphasize the following, that the arbitrariness of language establishes its sovereignty, as a servitude or a generalized slavery visited upon the masses. It has also been shown that two dimensions exist side by side in Saussure, the one horizontal, where the signified is reduced to the value of coexisting minimal terms into which the signifier decomposes, but the other vertical, where the signifier is elevated to the concept corresponding to the acoustic image that is, to the voice, taken in its maximum extension, which recomposes the signifier, value as the opposite of the coexisting terms, but also the concept as the opposite of the acoustic image. In short, the signifier appears twice, once in the chain of elements in relation to which the signified is always a signifier for another signifier, and a second time in the detached object on which the whole of the chain depends, and that spreads over the chain the effects of signification. There is no phonological or even phonetic code operating on the signifier in the first sense, without an overcoding effected by the signifier itself in the second sense. There is no linguistic field without biunivocal relations, whether between ideographic and phonetic values, or between articulations of different levels, monemes, and phonemes that finally ensure the independence and the linearity of the deterritorialized signs. But such a field remains defined by a transcendence, even when one considers this transcendence as an absence or an empty locus, performing the necessary foldings, levelings, rebatments and subordinations a transcendence whence issues throughout the system the inarticulate material flux in which this transcendence operates, opposes, selects, and combines, the signifier. It is curious, therefore, that one can show so well the servitude of the masses with respect to the minimal elements of the sign within the imminence of language, without showing how the domination is exercised through and in the transcendence of the signifier. There, however, as elsewhere, an irreducible exteriority of conquest asserts itself. For if language itself does not presuppose conquest, the leveling operations, lay operations to rebatment, that constitute written language indeed presuppose two inscriptions that do not speak the same language, two languages, languages, one of masters, the other of slaves. Jean Lugueral describes just such a situation, for the Sumerians, a given sign is water, the Sumerians read the sign A, which signifies water in Sumerian. An Akkadian comes along and asks his Sumerian master, What is this sign? The Sumerian replies, That's A. The Akkadian takes the sign for A, and on this point there is no longer any relationship between the sign and water, which in Akkadian is called mu. I believe that the presence of the Akkadians determined the phoneticization of the writing system and that the contact of two peoples is almost necessary before the spark of a new writing can spring forth 55. One cannot better show how an operation of bi organizes itself around a despotic signifier, so that a phonetic and alphabetical chain flows from it. Alphabetical writing is not for illiterates, but by illiterates It goes by way of illiterates, those unconscious workers. The signifier implies a language that overcodes another language, while the other language is completely coded into phonetic elements. And if the unconscious in fact includes the topical order of a double inscription, it is not structured like one language, but like two. The signifier does not appear to keep its promise, which is to give us access to a modern and functional understanding of language. The imperialism of the signifier does not take us beyond the question. What does it mean? It is content to bar the question in advance, to render all the answers insufficient by relegating them to the status of a simple signified. It challenges exegesis in the name of recitation, pure textuality, and superior scientificity scientificit. Like the young palace dogs too quick to drink the verse water, and who never tire of crying, the signifier, you have not reached the signifier, you are still at the level of the signifieds. The signifier is the only thing that gladdens their hearts. But this master signifier remains what it was in ages past, a transcendent stock that distributes lack to all the elements of the chain, something in common for a common absence, the authority that channels all the breaks flows into one and the same locus of one and the same cleavage, the detached object, the phallus and castration the bar that delivers over all the depressive subjects to the great paranoiac king. O signifier, terrible archaism of the despot where they still look for the empty tomb, the dead father, and the mystery of the name. And perhaps that is what incites the anger of certain linguists against Lakin, no less than the enthusiasm of his followers, the vigor and the serenity with which Lakin accompanies the signifier back to its source, to its veritable origin, the despotic age, and erects an infernal machine that welds desire to the law, because, everything considered so Lakin thinks this is indeed the form in which the signifier is in agreement with the unconscious, and the form in which it produces effects of the signified in the unconscious. The signifier as the repressing representation, and the new displaced represented that it induces, the famous metaphors and metonymy all of that constitutes the overcoding and deterritorialized despotic machine. The despotic signifier has the effect of overcoding the territorial chain. The signified is precisely the effect of the signifier, and not what it represents or what it designates. The signified is the sister of the borders and the mother of the interior. Sister and mother are the concepts that correspond to the great acoustic image, to the voice of the new alliance and direct filiation. Incest is the very operation of overcoding at the two ends of the chain in all the territory ruled by the despot, from the borders to the center, all the debts of alliance are converted into the infinite debt of the new alliance, and all the extended filiations are subsumed by direct filiation. Incest or the royal trinity is therefore the whole of the repressing representation insofar as it initiates the overcoding. The system of subordination or signification has replaced the system of connotation. To the extent that graphism is flattened onto the voice the graphism that, not so long ago, was inscribed flush with the body body representation subordinates itself to word representation, sister and mother are the voices signifieds. But to the extent that this flattening induces a fictitious voice from on high that no longer expresses itself except in the linear flux, the despot himself is the signifier of the voice that, along with the two signifieds, affects the overcoating of the whole chain. What made incest impossible namely, that at times we had the appellations, mother, sister, but not the persons or the bodies, while at other times we had the bodies, but the appellations disappeared from view as soon as we broke through the prohibitions they bore has ceased to exist. Incest has become possible in the wedding of the kinship bodies and family appellations, in the union of the signifier with its signifieds. Hence it is by no means a question of knowing if the despot marries his true sister and his true mother. For in any case his true sister is the sister of the wilderness, just as his true mother is the mother of the tribe. Once incest is possible, it matters little whether it is simulated or not, since in any case something else again is simulated through incest. And in accordance with the complementarity of simulation and identity that we encountered earlier, if the identification is that of the object on high, the simulation is indeed the writing that corresponds to it, the flux that flows from this object, the graphic flux that flows from the voice. Simulation does not replace reality, it is not an equivalent that stands for reality, but rather it appropriates reality in the operation of despotic overcoding, it produces reality on the new full body that replaces the earth. It expresses the appropriation and production of the real by a quasi-cause. In incest it is the signifier that makes love with its signifieds. System of simulation is the other name for signification and subordination. And what is simulated and therefore produced, through the incest that is itself simulated and therefore produced all the more real for being simulated, and vice versa is something very much like the extreme states of a reconstituted, recreated intensity. With his sister the despot simulates a zero state from which the phallic force will arise, like a promise whose hidden presence in the very interior of the body must be situated at the extreme limit, and with his mother the despot simulates a superforce where the two sexes would be at the maximum degree of externalization of their specific natures, the B.A.B.A. of the phallus as voice. Point 56. Hence something else is always at issue in royal incest, bisexuality, homosexuality, castration, transavistism, as so many gradients and passages in the cycle of intensities. This is because the despotic signifier aims at the reconstitution of the full body of the intense earth that the primitive machine had repressed, but on new foundations or under new conditions present in the deterritorialized full body of the despot himself. This is the reason that incest changes its meaning or locus, and becomes the repressing representation. For what is at stake in the overcoating effected by incest is the following, that all the organs of all the subjects, all the eyes, all the mouths, all the penises, all the vaginas, all the ears, and all the anuses become attached to the full body of the despot, as though to the peacock's tail of a royal train, and that they have in this body their own intensive representatives. Royal incest is inseparable from the intense multiplication of organs and their inscription on the new full body. Sada saw clearly this always royal role of incest. The apparatus of social repression psychic repression i.e., the repressing representation now finds itself defined in terms of a supreme danger that expresses the representative on which it bears, the danger that a single organ might flow outside the despotic body, that it might break away or escape. Suddenly the despot sees rising up before him, against him, the enemy who brings death an eye with too steady a look, a mouth with too unfamiliar a smile, each organ is a possible protest. It is at one and the same time that a half-deaf Caesar complains of an ear that no longer hears, and sees weighing on him the look of Cassius, lean and hungry, and the smile of Cassius, who smiles in such a sort as if he mocked himself. A long chronicle that will carry the assassinated, dismembered, disorganized, filed-down body of the despot into the latrines of the city. Wasn't it already the anus that detached the object on high and produced the eminent voice? Didn't the transcendence of the phallus depend on the anus? But the latter is revealed only at the end, as the last vestige of the vanished despot, the underside of his voice, the despot is nothing more than this dead rat's ass suspended from the ceiling of the sky. The organs begin by detaching themselves from the despotic body, the organs of the citizen risen up against the tyrant. Then they will become those of private man, they will become privatized after the model and memory of the disgraced anus, ejected from the social field the obsessive fear of smelling bad. The entire history of primitive coding, of despotic overcoating. And of the decoding of private man turns on these movements of flows, the intense germinal influx, the surflux of royal incest, and the reflux of excrement that conducts the dead despot to the latrines, and conducts us all to today's private man the history sketched out by Artot in his masterpiece Heliogable. The entire history of the graphic flux goes from the flood of sperm in the tyrant's cradle, to the wave of shit in his sewer tomb all writing is so much pig shit, all writing is the simulation sperm and excrement one might think that the system of imperial representation was in spite of everything milder than that of territorial representation the signs are no longer inscribed in the flesh itself but on stones parchments pieces of currency and lists according to Wittfogel's law of diminishing administrative returns Wide sectors are left semi-autonomous insofar as they do not compromise the power of the state. The eye no longer extracts a surplus value from the spectacle of suffering, it has ceased to evaluate, it has begun rather to forewarn and keep watch, to see that no surplus value escapes the overcoating of the despotic machine. For all the organs and their functions experience a detachment and elevation that relates them to, and makes them converge on, the full body of the despot. In point of fact the regime is not milder, the system of terror has replaced the system of cruelty. The old cruelty persists, especially in the autonomous or quasi-autonomous sectors, but it is now bricked into the state apparatus, which at times organizes it and at other times tolerates or limits it, in order to make it serve the ends of the state, and to subsume it under the higher superimposed unity of a law that is more terrible. As a matter of fact, The law's opposition or apparent opposition to despotism comes late when the state presents itself as an apparent peacemaker between classes that become distinct from the state, making it necessary for the latter to reshape its form of sovereignty. The law does not begin by being what it will become or seek to become later, a guarantee against despotism, an imminent principle that unites the parts into a whole that makes of this whole the object of a general knowledge and will whose sanctions are merely derivative of a judgment and an application directed at the rebellious parts. The imperial barbarian law possesses instead two features that are in opposition to those just mentioned the two features that Kafka so forcefully developed, first, the paranoiac schizoid trait of the law, metonymy, according to which the law governs non-totalizable and non-totalized parts, partitioning them off, organizing them as bricks, measuring their distance and forbidding their communication, henceforth acting in the name of a formidable but formal and empty unity, eminent, distributive, and not collective, and second, the maniacal depressive trait, metaphor, according to which the law reveals nothing and has no knowable object, the verdict having no existence prior to the penalty, and the statement of the law having no existence prior to the verdict. The trial by ordeal presents these two traits in a raw state. As in the machine of in the penal colony, it is the penalty that writes both the verdict and the rule that has been broken. In vain did the body liberate itself from its characteristic graphism in the system of connotation, for it now becomes the stone and the paper, the tablet, and the currency on which the new writing is able to mark its figures, its phonetism, and its alphabet. Overcoding is the essence of the law, and the origin of the new sufferings of the body. Punishment has ceased to be a festive occasion, from which the eye extracts a surplus value in the magic triangle of alliance and filiations. Punishment becomes a vengeance, the vengeance of the voice, the hand, and the eye now join together on the despot the vengeance of the new alliance, whose public character does not spoil the secret, I will bring down upon you the avenging sword of the vengeance of alliance. For once again, before it becomes a feigned guarantee against despotism, the law is the invention of the despot himself, it is the juridical form assumed by the infinite debt. The jurist will be seen in the despot's procession up to the time of the late Roman emperors, and the juridical form will accompany the imperial formation, the legislator alongside the monster, Gaius and Commodus, Popinian and Caracalla, Ulpian and Heliogabalus the delirium of the Twelve Caesars and the Golden Age of Roman Law taking the debtor's side against the creditor when necessary, so as to consolidate the infinite debt. As vengeance, and a vengeance exercised in advance, the imperial barbarian law crushes the whole primitive interplay of action, the enacted, vagi, and reaction. Passivity must now become the virtue of the subjects attached to the despotic body as Nietzsche says when he shows precisely how punishment becomes a vengeance in the imperial formations, a tremendous quantity of freedom must have been expelled from the world, or at least from the visible world, and made as it were latent under their hammer blows and artists' violence. Fifty-seven, There occurs a detachment and elevation of the death instinct, which ceases to be coded in the interplay of savage actions and reactions where fatalism was still something enacted, in order to become the sombre agent of overcoating, the detached object that hovers over each subject, as though the social machine had come unstuck from its desiring machines, death, the desire of desire, the desire of the despot’s desire, a latency inscribed in the bowels of the state apparatus. Better not a soul survivor than for a single organ to flow outside this apparatus or slip away from the body of the despot. This is because there is no other necessity, no other fathom, than that of the signifier in its relationships with its signifieds, such is the regime of terror. What the law is supposed to signify will only be revealed later, when it has evolved and assumed the new figure that appears to place it in opposition to despotism. But from the beginning it expresses the imperialism of the signifier that produces its signifieds as effects that are the more effective and necessary as they escape knowing, and as they owe all to their eminent cause. Occasionally it still happens that the young dogs will call for a return to the despotic signifier, without exegesis or interpretation, while the law, however, wants to explain what it signifies, to assert an independence of its signified against the despot, says the law. For the dogs, according to Kafka's observations, want desire to be firmly wedded to the law in the pure detachment and elevation of the death instinct, rather than to hear, it is true hypocritical doctors explain what it all means. But all that the development of the democratic signified or the wrapping of the despotic signifier nevertheless forms part of the same question, sometimes open and sometimes barred, the same extended abstraction, a repressive machinery that always moves us away from the desiring machines. For there has never been but one state. The question what is the use of that? Fades more and more, and disappears in the fog of pessimism, of nihilism, nada, nada. The order of law as it appears in the imperial formation, and as it will evolve later, indeed have something in common, the indifference to designation. It is in the nature of the law to signify without designating anything. The law does not designate anything or anybody, the democratic conception of law will make this into a criterion. The complex relationship of designation, as we have seen it elaborated in the system of primitive connotation with its interplay of voice, graphism, and I, here disappears in the new relationship of barbarian subordination. How could designation subsist when the sign has ceased to be a position of desire, in order to become this imperial sign, a universal castration that welds desire to the law? It is the crushing of the old code, it is the new relationship of signification, it is the necessity of this new relationship established in the overcoding process, that refers designations to the arbitrary, or that lets them subsist in the form of bricks held over from the old system? Why is it that linguists are constantly rediscovering the truths of the despotic age? And finally, could it be that this arbitrariness of designations, as the reverse side of a necessity of signification, does not bear only on the despot's subjects, nor even on his servants, but on the despot himself, his dynasty, and his name, the people do not know what emperor is reigning, and there exist doubts regarding even the name of the Dynasty 58? This would mean that the death instinct is even more deeply rooted in the state than thought, and that latency not only befalls the subjects of the state, but is also at work in the highest machinery of the apparatus. The revenge becomes that of the subjects against the despot. In the latency system of terror, what is no longer active enacted or reacted to this instinct for freedom forcibly made latent pushed back and repressed incarcerated within and finally able to discharge and vent itself only on itself 59 that very thing is now resanti the eternal resantimon of the subjects answers to the eternal vengeance of the despots the inscription is resantia when it is no longer enacted or reacted to when the deterritorialized sign becomes a signifier A formidable quantity of reaction passes into a latent state, all the resonance and all the retention change in volume and time, the after the event. Vengeance and ressentiment, not the beginning of justice, to be sure, but its becoming and its destiny in the imperial formation as Nietzsche analyzes it. And according to his prophecy, wouldn't the state itself be that dog which wants to die? But that is also reborn from its ashes for it is this whole constellation of the new alliance the imperialism of the signifier, the metaphoric or metonymic necessity of the signifieds, with the arbitrary of the designations that ensures the maintenance of the system, and sees to it that the name is succeeded by another name, one dynasty by another, without changing the signifieds, and without a collapse of the wall of the signifier. This is why the order of latency in the African, Chinese, Egyptian and other empires was that of rebellions and constant secessions, and not that of revolution. Here again, death will have to be felt from within, but it will have to come from without. The founders of empires caused everything to pass into a latent state, they invented vengeance and incited ressentiment, that counter-vengeance. And yet Nietzsche says about them what he has already said about the primitive system, It was not in their midst that bad conscience, this ugly growth i.e., Oedipus took root and began to grow. It is simply that one more step has been taken in that direction, Oedipus, bad conscience, interiority, they made it possible. 60. What does Nietzsche mean, this man who dragged Caesar along with him as a despotic signifier, along with its two signifieds, his sister and his mother, and who felt their weight grow heavier as he drew nearer to madness? It is true that Oedipus begins its cellular, ovular migration in the system of imperial representation. From being at first the displaced represented of desire, it becomes the repressing representation itself. The impossible has become possible. The unoccupied limit now finds itself occupied by the despot. Oedipus has received its name. The club-footed despot committing double incest through overcoating. With his sister and his mother as body representations subjected to verbal representation. Moreover, Oedipus is in the process of establishing each of the formal operations that will make it all possible: the extrapolation of a detached object, the double bind of overcoating or royal incest, the biunivocalization, application, and linearization of the chain between masters and slaves, the introduction of the law into desire and of desire into the law the terrible latency with its afterward or its after the event. All the parts of the five paralogisms thus seem to be ready. But we are still very far from the psychoanalytic Oedipus, and the Hellenists are right to not grasp clearly the story that psychoanalysis is trying at all costs to tell them. It is indeed the story of desire and its sexual history, there is no other. But here all the parts figure as cogs and wheels in the state machine. Desire is by no means an interplay between a son, a mother, and a father. Desire institutes a libidinal investment of a state machine that overcodes the territorial machine and, with an additional turn of the screw, represses the desiring machines. Incest derives from this investment and not the reverse. At first it brings into play only the despot, the sister, and the mother, it is the overcoding and repressing representation. The father intervenes only as the representative of the old territorial machine, but the sister is the representative of the new alliance, and the mother is the representative of direct filiation. Father and son are not yet born. Asexuality functions in terms of the conjoined operations of machines, their internecine struggle, their superposition, their interlocking arrangements. Let us marvel once again at Freud's account of Oedipus. In Moses and Monotheism he indeed surmises that latency is a state affair. But then latency must not succeed the Oedipus complex, marking the complex's repression or even its suppression. It must result from the repressing action of the incestuous representation, which is not yet by any means a complex in the sense of repressed desire, since on the contrary the representation exercises its repressive action on desire itself. The Oedipus complex as it is called by psychoanalysis, will be born of latency after latency and it signifies the return of the repressed under conditions that disfigure, displace, and even decode desire. The Oedipus complex appears only after latency, and when Freud recognizes two phases separated by latency, it is only the second phase that merits the complex's name, while the first expresses only its parts and wheels functioning from a completely different viewpoint, in a completely different organization. There we see the mania of psychoanalysis with all its paralogisms, it presents as a resolution, or an attempted resolution, of the complex what is rather the latter's definitive establishment or its interior installation, and it presents as the complex what is still the complex's opposite. What will be necessary in order for Oedipus to become the Oedipus, the Oedipus complex? Many things, in fact those things that Nietzsche partially grasped in the evolution of the infinite debt. The Oedipal cell will have to complete its migration, it must no longer be content to pass from the state of the displaced represented to that of repressing representation, rather, from being the repressing representation, it will have to finally become the representative of desire itself. And it must become the latter by virtue of being the displaced represented. The debt must not only become an infinite debt, it will have to be internalized and spiritualized as an infinite debt, Christianity and what follows. The father and the son will have to take form that is, the royal triad must masculinize itself and this must occur as a direct consequence of the infinite debt that is now internalized. Oedipus the despot will have to be replaced by Oedipuses as subjects, Oedipuses as subjugated individuals, Oedipuses as fathers, and Oedipuses as sons. All the formal operations will have to be resumed within a decoded social field, and must reverberate in the pure and private element of interiority, of interior reproduction. The apparatus of social repression psychic repression will have to undergo a complete reorganization. Hence desire, having completed its migration, will have to experience this extreme affliction of being turned against itself, the turning back against itself, bad conscience, the guilt that attaches it to the most decoded of social fields as well as to the sickest interiority, the trap for desire, its ugly growth. So long as the history of desire does not experience this outcome, Oedipus haunts all societies, but as the nightmare of something that has still not happened to them its hour has not come. And isn't this the strength of Lakin? to have saved psychoanalysis from the frenzied Oedipalization to which it was linking its fate to have brought about this salvation even at the price of a regression, and even though it meant the unconscious would be kept under the weight of the despotic apparatus, that it would be reinterpreted starting from this apparatus, the law, and the signifier phallus and castration, yes. Oedipus, no, the despotic age of the unconscious. 8. The Earth State. The city of ore the point of departure of Abraham or the new alliance. The state was not formed in progressive stages, it appears fully armed, a master stroke executed all at once, the primordial earth state, the eternal model of everything the state wants to be and desires. Asiatic production, with the state that expresses or constitutes its objective movement, is not a distinct formation, it is the basic formation, on the horizon throughout history. There comes back to us from all quarters the discovery of imperial machines that preceded the traditional historical forms, machines characterized by state ownership of property, with communal possession bricked into it, and collective dependence. Every form that is more evolved is like a palimpsest, it covers a despotic inscription, a Mycenaean manuscript. Under every black and every Jew there is an Egyptian, and a Mycenaean under the Greeks, and Etruscan under the Romans. And yet their origin sinks into oblivion, a latency that lays hold of the state itself, and where the writing system sometimes disappears. It is beneath the blows of private property, then of commodity production, that the state witnesses its decline. Land enters into the sphere of private property and into that of commodities. Classes appear, inasmuch as the dominant classes are no longer merged with the state apparatus, but are distinct determinations that make use of this transformed apparatus. At first situated adjacent to communal property, then entering into the latter's composition or conditioning it, then becoming more and more a determining force, private property brings about an internalization of the creditor-debtor relation in the relations of opposed classes. 61. But how does one explain both this latency into which the despotic state enters and this power with which it reforms itself on modified foundations, in order to spring back more mendacious, colder, and more hypocritical than ever. This oblivion and this return. On the one hand, the ancient city-state, the Germanic commune, and feudalism presuppose the great empires, and cannot be understood except in terms of the earth-state that serves as their horizon. On the other hand, the problem confronting these forms is to reconstitute the earth state insofar as possible, given the requirements of their new distinct determinations. For what do private property, wealth, commodities, and classes signify? The breakdown of codes. The appearance, the surging forth of now decoded flows that pour over the socius, crossing it from one end to the other. The state can no longer be content to overcode territorial elements that are already coded. It must invent specific codes for flows that are increasingly deterritorialized, which means, putting despotism in the service of the new class relations, integrating the relations of wealth and poverty, of commodity and labor, reconciling market money and money from revenues, everywhere stamping the mark of the earth state on the new state of things. And everywhere, the presence of the latent model that can no longer be equaled, but that one cannot help but imitate. The Egyptians' melancholy warning to the Greeks echoes through history, you Greeks will never be anything but children. This special situation of the state as a category oblivion and return has to be explained. To begin with, it should be said that the primordial despotic state is not a historical break like any other. Of all the institutions, it is perhaps the only one to appear fully armed in the brain of those who institute it, the artists with a look of bronze. That is why Marxism didn't quite know what to make of it, it has no place in the famous five stages, primitive communism, ancient city-states, feudalism, capitalism, and socialism. It is not one formation among others, nor is it the transition from one formation to another. It appears to be set back at a remove from what it transects and from what it resects, as though it were giving evidence of another dimension, a cerebral ideality that is added to. Superimposed on the material evolution of societies, a regulating idea or principle of reflection, terror, that organizes the parts and the flows into a whole. What is transect, superseded, or overcoated by the despotic state is what comes before the territorial machine, which it reduces to the state of bricks, of working parts henceforth subjected to the cerebral idea. In this sense the despotic state is indeed the origin but the origin as an abstraction that must include its differences with respect to the concrete beginning. We know that myth always expresses a passage and a divergence, on a card The primitive territorial myth of the beginning expressed the divergence of a characteristically intense energy what Marcel Griel called the metaphysical part of mythology, the vibratory spiral in relation to the social system in extension that it conditioned, passing back and forth between alliance and filiation but the imperial myth of the origin expresses something else, the divergence of this beginning from the origin itself, the divergence of the extension from the idea, of the genesis from the order and the power, the new alliance, and also what repasses from filiation to alliance, what is taken up again by filiation. Jean-Pierre Vernant shows in this way that the imperial myths are not able to conceive a law of organization that is imminent in the universe, they need to posit and internalize this difference between the origin and the beginnings, between the sovereign power and the genesis of the world, the myth constitutes itself within this distance, it makes it into the very object of its narrative, retracing the avatars of sovereignty down through the succession of generations to the moment when a supremacy, this time definitive, puts an end to the dramatic elaboration of the Dunsteus 62 so that in the end one no longer really knows what comes first, and whether the territorial machine does not in fact presuppose a despotic machine from which it extracts the bricks or that it segments in its turn. In a certain sense it is necessary to say as much in regard to what comes after the primal state, in regard to what is resected by the state. It supersects what comes before, but resects the formations that follow. There too it is like an abstraction that belongs to another dimension, always at a remove and struck by latency, but that springs back and returns stronger than before in the later forms that lend it a concrete existence. A protean state, yet there has never been but one state. Whence the variations, all the variants of the new alliance, falling nevertheless under the same category. For example, Feudalism not only presupposes an abstract despotic state that it divides into segments according to the regime of its private property and the rise of its commodity production, but the latter induce in return the concrete existence of a feudal state in the proper sense of the term, where the despot returns as the absolute monarch. For it is a double error to think that the development of commodity production is enough to bring about feudalism's collapse. On the contrary, this development reinforces feudalism in many respects offering the latter new conditions of existence and survival and that feudalism of itself is in opposition to the state which on the contrary as the feudal state is capable of preventing commodities from introducing the decoding of flows that alone would be ruinous to the system under consideration and in more recent examples we have to go along with witfogel when he shows the degree to which modern capitalist and socialist states take on the characteristic features of the primordial despotic state as for democracies, how could one fail to recognize in them the despot who has become colder and more hypocritical, more calculating, since he must himself count and code instead of overcoding the accounts? It is useless to compose the list of differences after the manner of conscientious historians village communes here, industrial societies there, and so on. The differences could be determining only if the despotic state were one concrete formation among others. To be treated comparatively. But the despotic state is the abstraction that is realized in imperial formations, to be sure only as an abstraction, the overcoding eminent unity. It assumes its imminent concrete existence only in the subsequent forms that cause it to return under other guises and conditions. Being the common horizon for what comes before and what comes after, it conditions universal history only provided it is not on the outside, but always off to the side the cold monster that represents the way in which history is in the head, in the brain the earth state. Marx recognized that there was indeed a way in which history proceeded from the abstract to the concrete, the simple categories are the expression of relations within which the less developed concrete may have already realized itself before having posited the more many-sided connection or relation which is mentally expressed in the more concrete category, while the more developed concrete preserves the same category as a subordinate relation, 63, the state was first this abstract unity that integrated sub-aggregates functioning separately. It is now subordinated to a field of forces whose flows it coordinates and whose autonomous relations of domination and subordination it expresses. It is no longer content to overcode maintained and imbricated territorialities. It must constitute invent codes for the decoded flows of money, commodities, and private property. It no longer of itself forms a ruling class or classes, it is itself formed by these classes, which have become independent and delegated to serve their power and their contradictions, their struggles and their compromises with the dominated classes. It is no longer the transcendent law that governs fragments, it must fashion as best it can a whole to which it will render its law imminent. It is no longer the pure signifier that regulates its signifieds, it now appears behind them, depending on the things it signifies. It no longer produces an overcoding unity, it is itself produced inside the field of decoded flows. As a machine, it no longer determines a social system, it is itself determined by the social system into which it is incorporated in the exercise of its functions. In brief, it does not cease being artificial. But it becomes concrete, it tends to concretization while subordinating itself to the dominant forces. The existence of an analogous evolution has been demonstrated for the technical machine, when it ceases to be an abstract unity or intellectual system reigning over separate subaggregates to become a relation that is subordinated to a field of forces operating as a concrete physical system. Point 64. But isn't this tendency to concretization in the social or technical machine precisely the movement of desire? Again and again we come upon the monstrous paradox, the state is desire that passes from the head of the despot to the hearts of his subjects, and from the intellectual law to the entire physical system that disengages or liberates itself from the law. A state desire, the most fantastic machine for repression, is still desire the subject that desires and the object of desire. Desire such is the operation that consists in always stamping the mark of the primordial earth state on the new state of things, rendering it imminent to the new system insofar as possible, making it interior to the system. As for the rest, it will be a question of starting again from zero, the founding of a spiritual empire there where forms exist under which the state can no longer function as such in the physical system. When the Christians took possession of the empire, this complementary duality reappeared between those who wanted to do everything possible to reconstruct the Ur-State from the elements they found in the imminence of the objective Roman world, and the purists, who wanted a fresh start in the wilderness, a new beginning for a new alliance, a rediscovery of the Egyptian and Syriac inspiration that would provide the impetus for a transcendent Ur-State. What strange machines those were that cropped up on columns and in tree trunks. In this sense, Christianity was able to develop a whole set of paranoiac and celibate machines, a whole string of paranoiacs and perverts who also form part of our history's horizon and people our calendar. These are the two aspects of a becoming of the state, its internalization in a field of increasingly decoded social forces forming a physical system, its spiritualization in a superterrestrial field that increasingly overcodes, forming a metaphysical system the infinite debt must become internalized at the same time as it becomes spiritualized. The hour of bad conscience draws nigh, it will also be the hour of the greatest cynicism, that repressed cruelty of the animal man made inward and scared back into himself, the creature imprisoned in the state so as to be tamed. 65. 9. The Civilized Capitalist Machine The first great movement of deterritorialization appears with the overcoding performed by the despotic state. But it is nothing compared to the other great movement, the one that will be brought about by the decoding of flows. The action of decoded flows is not enough, however, to cause the new break to traverse and transform the socius not enough, that is, to induce the birth of capitalism. Decoded flows strike the despotic state with latency, they submerge the tyrant, but they also cause him to return in unexpected forms, they democratize him, oligarchize him, segmentalize him, monarchize him, and always internalize and spiritualize him, while on the horizon there is the latent earth state for the loss of which there is no consolation. It is now up to the state to recode as best it can, by means of regular or exceptional operations, the product of the decoded flows. Let us take the example of Rome, the decoding of the landed flows, deflux fanciers, through the privatization of property, the decoding of the monetary flows through the formation of great fortunes, the decoding of the commercial flows through the development of commodity production, the decoding of the producers through expropriation and proletarization all the preconditions are present, everything is given, without producing a capitalism properly speaking, but rather a regime based on. Slavery.66 Or the example of feudalism, there again private property, commodity production, the monetary afflux, the extension of the market, the development of towns, and the appearance of monoreal ground rent in money form, or of the contractual hiring of labor, do not by any means produce a capitalist economy, but rather a reinforcing of feudal offices and relations, at times a return to more primitive stages of feudalism, and occasionally even the re-establishment of a kind of slavery. Esclavagism. And it is well known that the monopolistic action favoring the guilds and the companies promotes, not the rise of capitalist production, but the insertion of the bourgeoisie into a town and state feudalism that consists in devising codes for flows that are decoded as such, and in keeping the merchants, according to Marx's formula, in the very pores of the old full body of the social machine. Hence, capitalism does not lead to the dissolution of feudalism, but rather the contrary, and that is why so much time was required between the two. There is a great difference in this respect between the despotic age and the capitalist age. For the founders of the state come like lightning, the despotic machine is synchronic while the capitalist machine's time is diachronic. The capitalists appear in succession in a series that institutes a kind of creativity of history, a strange menagerie the schizoid time of the new creative break. The dissolutions are defined by a simple decoding of flows, and they are always compensated by residual forces or transformations of the state. Death is felt rising from within and desire itself becomes the death instinct, latency, but it also passes over into these flows that carry the seeds of a new life. Decoded flows but who will give a name to this new desire? Flows of property that is sold, flows of money that circulates, flows of production and means of production making ready in the shadows, flows of workers becoming deterritorialized. the encounter of all these flows will be necessary, their conjunction, and their reaction on one another and the contingent nature of this encounter, this conjunction, and this reaction, which occur one time in order for capitalism to be born, and for the old system to die this time from without, at the same time as the new life begins and desire receives its name. The only universal history is the history of contingency. Let us return to this eminently contingent question that modern historians know how to ask, why Europe, why not China? Apropos of ocean navigation, Fernand Braudel asks, why not Chinese, Japanese, or even Moslem ships? Why not Sinbad the sailor? It is not the technique, the technical machine, that is lacking. Isn't it rather that desire remains caught in the nets of the despotic state, entirely invested in the despot's machine? Perhaps then the merit of the West, confined as it was on its narrow Cape of Asia, was to have needed the world, to have needed to venture outside its own front door. 67. The schizophrenic voyage is the only kind there is. Later this will be the American meaning of frontiers, something to go beyond, limits to cross over, flows to set in motion, non-coded spaces to enter. Decoded desires and desires for decoding have always existed, history is full of them. But we have just seen that only through their encounter in a place, and their conjunction in a space that takes time, do decoded flows constitute a desire. A desire that, instead of just dreaming or lacking it, actually produces a desiring machine that is at the same time social and technical. That is why capitalism and its break are defined not solely by decoded flows, but by the generalized decoding of flows, the new massive deterritorialization, the conjunction of deterritorialized flows. It is the singular nature of this conjunction that ensured the universality of capitalism. By simplifying a lot, we can say that the savage territorial machine operated on the basis of connections of production and that the barbarian despotic machine was based on disjunctions of inscription derived from the eminent unity. But the capitalist machine, the civilized machine, will first establish itself on the conjunction. When this occurs, the conjunction no longer merely designates remnants that have escaped coding, or consummations consumptions as in the primitive feasts, or even the maximum consumption in the extravagance of the despot and his agents. When the conjunction moves to the fore in the social machine, it seems on the contrary that it ceases to be tied to enjoyment or to the excess consumption of a class, that it makes luxury itself into a means of investment, and reduces all the decoded flows to production, in a production for production's sake that rediscovers the primitive connections of labor, on condition on the sole condition that they be linked to capital and to the new deterritorialized full body, the true consumer from whence they seem to emanate as in the pact with the devil that Marx describes the industrial eunuch, so it's your fault if. 68. At the heart of capital, Marx points to the encounter of two principal elements, on one side, the deterritorialized worker who has become free and naked, having to sell his labor capacity, and on the other, decoded money that has become capital and is capable of buying it. The fact that these two elements result from the segmentation of the despotic state in feudalism, and from the decomposition of the feudal system itself and that of its state, still does not give us the extrinsic conjunction of these two flows, flows of producers and flows of money. The encounter might not have taken place, with the free workers and the money capital existing virtually side by side. One of the elements depends on a transformation of the agrarian structures that constitute the old social body, while the other depends on a completely different series going by way of the merchant and the usurer, as they exist marginally in the pores of this old social body. 69 What is more, each of these elements brings into play several processes of decoding and deterritorialization having very different origins. For the free worker, the deterritorialization of the soil through privatization, the decoding of the instruments of production through appropriation, the loss of the means of consumption through the dissolution of the family and the corporation, and finally, the decoding of the worker in favor of the work itself or of the machine. And for capital, the deterritorialization of wealth through monetary abstraction, the decoding of the flows of production through merchant capital, the decoding of states through financial capital and public debts, the decoding of the means of production through the formation of industrial capital, and so on. Let us consider more in detail how the elements come together, with the conjunction of all their processes. It is no longer the age of cruelty or the age of terror, but the age of cynicism, accompanied by a strange piety. The two taken together constitute humanism, cynicism is the physical imminence of the social field, and piety is the maintenance of a spiritualized state. cynicism is capital as the means of extorting surplus labor, but piety is the same capital as God-capital, whence all the forces of labor seem to emanate. This age of cynicism is that of the accumulation of capital an age that implies a period of time, precisely for the conjunction of all the decoded and deterritorialized flows. As Maurice Dobb has shown, an accumulation of property title deeds in land. For example, will be necessary in a first period of time, in a favorable conjuncture, at a time when this property costs little, the disintegration of the feudal system, and a second period is required when the property is sold during a rise in prices and under conditions that make industrial investment especially advantageous, the price revolution, an abundant reserve supply of labour, the formation of a proletariat. An easy access to sources of raw materials, favorable conditions for the production of tools and machinery, Point seventy. All sorts of contingent factors favor these conjunctions. So many encounters for the formation of the thing, the unamable. But the effect of the conjunction is indeed capital's tighter and tighter control over production, capitalism or its break, the conjunction of all the decoded and deterritorialized flows, cannot be defined by commercial capital or by financial capital these being merely flows among other flows and elements among other elements but rather by industrial capital. Doubtless the merchant was very early an active factor in production, either by turning into an industrialist himself in occupations based on commerce, or by making artisans into his own intermediaries or employees, the struggles against the guilds and the monopolies. But capitalism doesn't begin. The capitalist machine is not assembled, until capital directly appropriates production, and until financial capital and merchant capital are no longer anything but specific functions corresponding to a division of labor in the capitalist mode of production in general. One then re-encounters the production of productions, the production of recordings, and the production of consumptions but precisely in this conjunction of decoded flows that makes of capital the new social full-body whereas commercial and financial capitalism in its primitive forms merely installed itself in the pores of the old socius without changing the old mode of production. Even before the capitalist production machine is assembled, commodities and money affect a decoding of flows through abstraction. But this does not occur in the same way for both instances. First, simple exchange inscribes commercial products as particular quanta of a unit of abstract labor. It is abstract labor, posited in the exchange relation, that forms the disjunctive synthesis of the apparent movement of commodities, since the abstract labor is divided into qualified pieces of labor to which a given determinate quantum corresponds. But it is only when a general equivalent appears as money that one enters into the reign of the quantitas, which can have all sorts of particular values or be worth all sorts of quanta. This abstract quantity nonetheless must have some particular value, so that it still appears only as a relation of magnitude between quanta. It is in this sense that the exchange relation formally unites partial objects that are produced and even inscribed independently of it. The commercial and monetary inscription remains overcoded and even repressed by the previous characteristics and modes of inscription of associates considered in its specific mode of production, which knows nothing of and does not recognize abstract labor. As Marx says, the latter is indeed the simplest and most ancient relation of productive activity, but it does not appear as such and only becomes a true practical relation in the modern capitalist machine. 71. That is why, before, the monetary and commercial inscription does not have a body of its own at its disposal, and why it is inserted into the interstices of the pre-existing social body. The merchant is continually speculating with the maintained territorialities, so as to buy where prices are low and sell where they are high. Before the capitalist machine, merchant, or financial capital is merely in a relationship of alliance with non-capitalist production, it enters into the new alliance that characterizes pre-capitalist states whence the alliance of the merchant and banking bourgeoisie with feudalism. In brief. The capitalist machine begins when capital ceases to be a capital of alliance to become affiliative capital. Capital becomes affiliative when money begets money, or value a surplus value value in process, money in process, and, as such, capital. Value suddenly presents itself as an independent substance, endowed with a motion of its own, in which money and commodities are mere forms which it assumes and casts off in turn. Nay more, instead of simply representing the relations of commodities, it enters now, so to say, into relations with itself. It differentiates itself as original value from itself as surplus value, as the father differentiates himself qua the son, yet both are one and of one age, for only by the surplus value of ten pounds does the one hundred pounds originally advanced become capital seventy-two. It is solely under these conditions that capital becomes the full body, the new socius or the quasi-cause that appropriates all the productive forces. We are no longer in the domain of the quantum or of the quantitus, but in that of the differential relation as a conjunction that defines the immanent social field particular to capitalism, and confers on the abstraction as such its effectively concrete value, its tendency to concretization. The abstraction has not ceased to be what it is, But it no longer appears in the simple quantity as a variable relation between independent terms, it has taken upon itself the independence, the quality of the terms and the quantity of the relations. The abstract itself posits the more complex relation within which it will develop like something concrete. This is the differential relation dy-dx where dy derives from labor power and constitutes the fluctuation of variable capital, and where dx derives from capital itself and constitutes the fluctuation of constant capital, the definition of constant capital by no means excludes the possibility of a change in the value of its constituent parts. It is from the fluxion of decoded flows, from their conjunction, that the filiative form of capital, x plus dx, results the differential relation expresses the fundamental capitalist phenomenon of the transformation of the surplus value of code into a surplus value of flux. The fact that a mathematical appearance here replaces the old code simply signifies that one is witnessing a breakdown of the subsisting codes and territorialities for the benefit of a machine of another species, functioning in an entirely different way. This is no longer the cruelty of life, the terror of one life brought to bear against another life, but a post-mortem despotism, the despot become anus and vampire, capital is dead labor, that vampire-like, only lives by sucking living labor, and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. Industrial capital thus offers a new new filiation that is a constituent part of the capitalist machine, in relation to which commercial capital and financial capital will now take the form of a new alliance by assuming specific functions. The celebrated problem of the tendency to a falling rate of profit, that is, of surplus value in relation to total capital, can be understood only from the viewpoint of capitalism's entire field of imminence, and by taking into account the conditions under which a surplus value of code is transformed into a surplus value of flux. First of all, it appears that in keeping with Balibar's remarks this tendency to a falling rate of profit has no end but reproduces itself while reproducing the factors that counteract it. But why does it have no end? Doubtless for the same reasons that provoke the laughter of the capitalists and their economists when they ascertain that surplus value cannot be determined mathematically. Yet they have little cause to rejoice. They would be better off concluding in favor of the very thing they are bent on hiding, that it is not the same money that goes into the pocket of the wage earner and is entered on the balance sheet of a commercial enterprise. In the one case, there are impotent money signs of exchange value, a flow of means of payment relative to consumer goods and use values, and a one-to-one relation between money and an imposed range of products, which I have a right to, which are my due, so they're mine, in the other case, signs of the power of capital, flows of financing, a system of differential quotients of production that bear witness to a prospective force or to a long-term evaluation, not realizable hec et and functioning as an axiomatic of abstract quantities. In the one case, money represents a potential break-deduction in a flow of consumption, in the other case, it represents a break-detachment and a re-articulation of economic chains directed toward the adaptation of flows of production to the disjunctions of capital. The extreme importance in the capitalist system of the dualism that exists in banking has been demonstrated, the dualism between the formation of means of payment and the structure of financing, between the management of money and the financing of capitalist accumulation, between exchange money and credit money. 73: The fact that banks participate in both, that they are situated at the pivotal point between financing and payment, merely shows the multiple interactions of these two operations. Thus in credit money, which comprises all the commercial and bank credits, purely commercial credit has its roots in simple circulation where money develops as means of payment, bills of exchange falling due on a fixed date, which constitute a monetary form of finite debt. Inversely, bank credit affects a demonetization or dematerialization of money, and is based on the circulation of drafts instead of the circulation of money. This credit money traverses a particular circuit where it assumes, then loses, its value as an instrument of exchange, and where the conditions of flux imply conditions of reflux, giving to the infinite debt its capitalist form, but the state as a regulator ensures a principle of convertibility of this credit money, either directly by tying it to gold, or indirectly through a mode of centralization that comprises a guarantor of the credit, a uniform interest rate a unity of capital markets, etc. Hence one is correct in speaking of a profound dissimulation of the dualism of these two forms of money, payment, and financing the two aspects of banking practice.